Father, refocus my mind as we get started here today. Refocus all of our hearts and minds that we would be able to see and receive what you have for us. In Christ's name, amen. I would invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 will be our text for today. As you are turning there, I just want to remind you of where we have been. Last time on Reformation Sunday, we discussed the idea of rediscovering the Word and reforming the church through the lens of 2 Kings chapter 22. And with an eye toward the rediscovery uh, for Luther and the other magisterial reformers, their realization of the principle of sola scriptura, scripture alone, led to a number of other changes in the church. And today we're going to consider what they did by rethinking worship in light of scripture. So let's do that now through the lens of Colossians chapter 2. I'll be reading from verses 6 to 23. Paul writes, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition, and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In Him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands, Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through your faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, Do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Father, as we open your word today, we have already heard from your word as Dennis opened us with the psalm. We have sung the principles of your word together. 
we have discussed putting your word into action as we support missionary work here and abroad. Later, Lord, as we participate in the sacred ritual, the sacred ceremony of the remembrance celebration, we will be remembering the work that Jesus did for us. The work that He has already done. So Father, right now we ask You to work in us. I personally ask You, Lord, to speak by Your Spirit, through Your Word, beyond Your servant's faltering tongue. Father, we confess to You that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Even those of us who have already received Christ have been reborn and have Your Spirit living inside of us. We so often, so regularly, so stupidly follow our own flesh, that old nature that no longer defines who we are, but we still listen to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Father, we thank You for Your grace to us, Your forgiveness that we have in Christ. Keep Your servants from willful sins, Lord. May they not rule over us. We come before You as Your children, knowing that You have welcomed us because in Christ You have chosen and adopted us. And there is not one thing we can do to add to that or to take away from it. Father, we come also as unprofitable servants, knowing that even when we have done our best, we're doing nothing more than what was already expected. We offer You nothing that we've not already received from You. So protect us from pride and self as we somehow still continue to creep into the old lies that we can in any way add to the work that you have done in redeeming us. As we pray these things, Father, and as we open your word, we, we ask you to keep us from just being hearers of the word. Make us doers transform us as we enter into your word by your spirit in the name of your son jesus christ we pray amen so as we uh, look at this particular text and examine what paul writes here in colossians 2 uh, to the church at Colossae, we can clearly see this core reality you have it in front of you it's on the screen the ceremonies of Christian worship celebrate God's grace, not obtain it. Let me say that again. The ceremonies of Christian worship celebrate God's grace, not obtain it. Now, at first glance, that might seem pretty intuitive to us as Protestant Christians here today. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to address a particular uh, need in the church at Colossae. What's known as the Colossian heresy was creeping into the church. <clears throat> Excuse me. And as this Colossian heresy crept in, it was, it was a kind of false teaching uh, that seemed to blend Jewish mysticism and legalism with what would later on be called Gnosticism. It's sort of a proto-Gnosticism here, not developed as it would be later on. Uh, in the second century, that would be the biggest threat to the growing Christian church. But now in this sort of nebulous forming of this kind of false teaching, we see that it, it, it's not really specific or formalized, but it sought special spiritual knowledge through a variety of rules and regulations, thereby diminishing or devaluing the person and work of Christ. It was a, a sort of Jesus plus kind of gospel, if you will. Uh, you know, it, it's 
kind of, we believe in being saved by grace through faith, but we still need more. Yeah, that, that's good, but yeah, you know, I need more. I need, I need to feel something. We need that special kind of experience or feeling so that we can really know. How do I know that I'm saved if I don't feel saved? How do I know that I receive God's grace unless I do something? We have this craving to be more holy, to need a special touch from God, so we chase after that mystical idea of faith through spiritual speculations, ceremonies, rules, and behavior, and those elusive personal experiences. Now, that's what's going on in Colossae at the time. If it sounds familiar to you, it should, because it's still going on in us today. That sort of thing can be very appealing because it feels like we're doing something special and connecting with God. How often do we get worked up, if I can use that, that phrase, by really moving music in church or on the radio or at a concert and we think, boy, the Spirit's really moving. Is it? Is it your spirit moving? Or is it your emotions moving? Is it the Holy Spirit of God? Is He moving? Or is it your emotions, your flesh, your feelings moving? And we get caught up a lot of times in religious ceremonies for the same reason. It reminds me of the original introduction to Sarah Young's popular Jesus Calling devotional in which she says, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. The Apostle draws the Colossians' attention and ours back to the simple truth of faith in the person of Christ and all that His death and resurrection accomplished in us and for us. Now, this kind of distortion of faith became the single biggest threat to Christianity in the second century, and in one form or another, it continues on to this day. Through the medieval period, this sort of thinking became entrenched in church tradition and doctrine, leading to all sorts of abuses and corruption. Many had sought to restore sound teaching and sound practice to the church, but by Luther's time, it may have been worse than ever. All of this was reflected in the worship gatherings, which focused almost entirely on what was called the Mass. Worship no longer included uh, very much participation from the people. It was a consumer sort of thing. There was no congregational singing. In fact, it was banned. There was no interactive study of the Scripture. There was no corporate prayer. The focus was on special people, the clergy, doing special things, administering the sacraments, particularly the elements of the Mass, doing the praying, doing the singing. And the regular people just consuming these special dispensations of grace through the special people doing the special things so that they could receive a special dispensation of grace from God. It was even all done in a special language that most of the people didn't really understand as the services were all performed in Latin. The prayers would generally be in Latin. The songs would be in Latin. The scriptures read in Latin while the people sat waiting for their turn to receive the Mass so that they could have the saving grace of God. I'm going to resist the urge to go farther into uh, Reformation history. But at that time, when that was the way that things were operating, I said I'm going to resist it, and here I go. Uh, the, the nature of this worship 
led to the superstitions as it blended together with pagan worship in the lands that had been conquered by the Roman Empire and converted to Christianity and the blending, the syncretism of this sort of false understanding of worship mixed with pagan worship and ceremonies and mindsets and beliefs led to superstitions that kept the people in fear, constantly fearing for their salvation. And if the people could only receive their salvation through the act of the priest, by his good graces, by the words and acts of the popes and the councils, you can imagine the amount of power that the church, which was now blended with the state, wielded in the lives of the people. That's as far as I'm going to go in the history, so I'm still resisting greater urges. Okay. Now, over the centuries, the church had constructed a form of worship that rested heavily on two dysfunctional pillars, sacramentalism and sacerdotalism. And some of you are saying, what did he just say? Gesundheit. Sacramentalism, you can jot this down if you like, space is there, there's no blank for it on your, on your program, but you'll find some white space on the paper. Sacramentalism teaches that certain sacred acts, known as sacraments, have inherent power to bless or to convey God's grace to the participant and are necessary to receive salvation. In other words, if you don't do these things, you don't get God's grace. You have to go through these ceremonies for these rites to be efficacious in your life and bring to you the grace of God. That's sacramentalism. The second dysfunctional pillar is sacerdotalism. Sacerdotalism. Brad's got that on the screen, right? Good. Okay? We can spell it that way. Sacerdotalism sees priests as essential mediators between God and humankind, placing them in a special class and ascribing to them special powers. That was the nature of the Mass in the medieval church. The concept of transubstantiation was the official doctrine of the church, and what that meant was that the priest by a special dispensation of God, the power of God in the priest, every single time they performed the ceremony of the Mass, performed the miraculous act of transforming the bread and the wine into the literal blood and body of Christ. So that in the act of doing this, Christ was essentially re-sacrificed every time. And therefore, if you did not participate in the ceremony, the sacrifice of Christ would not be applied to you. Sacramentalism teaches that the sacred acts have inherent power. Sacerdotalism sees the priests as essential and describes to them specific powers that go along with that office. Now, once the principle of sola scriptura, scripture alone, was rediscovered, it became a domino effect. As the light of God's word began to cast out the darkness of medieval teachings, the Reformation led to rethinking our worship by recovering a biblical theology of worship, understanding that the ceremonies of Christian worship celebrate God's grace, not obtain it. With that in mind, <clears throat> excuse me, let's take a look at how Paul does this with the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 2. Now, as we read through this, you probably are, are sharp enough folks to recognize he's not talking about the same things that Luther and the Reformers were looking at. Now, he is in concept, he is in a big picture, but he's not specifically addressing these rituals 
But you'll recognize by the end of the passage, when he starts to talk about the additional things being brought in that were happening in Colossae, how that applies, how that carries over. The reason that he doesn't have to address those things specifically is because those doctrines hadn't been developed yet. They wouldn't come along for several hundred years over time from the same type of philosophy that was already creeping in in Colossae. Notice this as we see the first section here. We live in Christ. Now there's a typo in your program. It should say the same way we receive Christ. We live in Christ the same way we receive Christ, by faith alone. We live in Christ the same way we receive Christ, by faith alone. Take a look at verses 6 through 8. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, let me say that again, just as, in the same way, in the same manner, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. What does that mean? Rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Now you may remember from our time in Ephesians recently that Colossians is very similar. There are a lot of parallels written about the same time to people in the same general area, about 100 miles apart, being delivered Uh, in all likelihood by the same group as they split off and Tychicus takes it to Ephesus and and, uh, Philemon takes it to Colossae. These churches have similar words coming from Paul from two different perspectives. In Colossians, because of the false teaching that's creeping in that diminishes Christ, the focus is on Christ as the head of the church, whereas in Ephesians, the focus was on the church as the body of Christ. Two sides of the same coin. Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Notice uh, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. We live in Christ the same way we receive Christ, by faith alone. You may remember Christ's words to the Pharisees as He hearkened back to the prophets, speaking to Israel and Judah, and especially to Isaiah, speaking to Israel. You are worshiping with merely human traditions isaiah said the lord said through isaiah these people they they worship me with their lips their hearts they're far from me they're doing all the things they're going to the temple they're making the sacrifices but their hearts aren't with me only the outer person That's not how we grow in our faith because it's not how we receive Christ. We receive Christ by believing that He is who He said and He did what He said He did. So when we see in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that we're saved by grace, it's not our faith that saves us. It's the grace that saves us. But we get hold of that grace through faith, through believing, trusting God, that when you say Jesus' death and resurrection is enough, it is enough. And I hang my hat on that nail, period. There is nothing else. This is my only parachute. Now, Paul here, as he's dealing with the Colossians, is seeing this. He hasn't been there. He, he spent three years in Ephesus, and that's probably what led to the Colossian church growing. It looks like Epaphras who was from Colossae, was saved at Ephesus and then carried the faith back to his hometown. But as Paul is dealing with them, he's getting word that this syncretism of Jewish legalism and mysticism and this proto-Gnostic idea of special knowledge and, and getting these 
revelations from God, having special dreams, this is what the Lord said to me, all these kinds of things, is turning into a very dangerous type of false teaching. And he addresses this here, as we're going to see in just a few minutes, by focusing on the fact that every single thing that God is giving to us, every change that He is making in us, every blessing that we receive in Him is an already settled fact. It's not something we climb up to heaven to bring down, and it's not something we go down into the earth to bring up, but it is in us by trusting Christ. It's a fact that has already been accomplished. Because of that, understanding that we live in Christ the same way we receive Christ, by faith alone, notice that putting our focus on religious rituals is a trap. Putting our focus on religious rituals is a trap. That's what he's saying in verse 8. Don't let anybody take you captive through these hollow, deceptive philosophies that appeal to the flesh. Whether that's a seeker-sensitive service, as we might focus today, or whether it's the, the trappings of sticking in a rigid liturgy because if we don't do it this way, God won't bless us. The pendulum swing has the same effect. It keeps us out of the center of God's will by living according to faith in Christ. Putting our focus on religious rituals is a trap. Notice as we move forward, our standing with God has been entirely accomplished by Christ through our faith. Our standing with God has been entirely accomplished by Christ through our faith. I won't have you uh, turn back there for the sake of time, but you might jot down Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. We've spent a lot of time there recently. Notice that all the doing that takes place as God blesses us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ comes from Him. He's doing the doing. It's not us. It's not us. It's not us. It's Him doing the doing. And then when you get to chapter 4, you see the same connection that James makes in his letter of saying, if God did the doing in you, if you believe this, act like it. Show up. Let what's inside work its way outside. Our standing with God has already been entirely accomplished by Christ through our faith. Let's take a look at verses 9 to 12 and notice how these things that he talks about are in the past tense. Right? Don't let anybody take you captive. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity, this is the only current part, the only present, lives. The fullness of of God lives in Christ in bodily form, verse 10. And in Christ Jesus, you have been brought to fullness. You have already been brought into the fullness of Christ. He is, was, is, will be the fullness of God. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Stop for just a moment and contemplate what that means. If you are in Christ, if you are united to Christ, because God has chosen you and placed you in the Son so that when He looks at you, all He sees is Jesus. And you have been united to Him. And He has all power and authority. You feel like you might be in a pretty secure place. Why would we ever have to be afraid? Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to be afraid because we still have this flesh we're dealing with. But we don't ever have reason to be afraid. Not in this life, not in the next life. If we are united to Christ, if we are in Him, and He has all power and authority, brother, you can't lose. That's how this works. He's the head over every power and authority, verse 11. In Him, you were, notice the past, you were also circumcised. Now, why is he talking about circumcision? He's speaking to Gentiles, 
mostly, in a Gentile city. But remember, they're dealing with this syncretism, this, this creeping teaching of blending together Jewish mysticism, mythology, superstition, and legalism, along with this newer philosophical special knowledge kind of thing. So while he is talking to a Gentile group, they have been told, man, if you're going to really experience Christ, you need to keep the Jewish traditions. You need to be circumcised. If you're not circumcised, then you're not really doing it right. So they're wrestling with all these things. We see that come up in the book of Acts when Paul and Barnabas are like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. And they go to the council and say, this is what's being taught. We've got to put the we got to put the kibosh on this. And they shut it down. But here, as he's addressing this, he's saying to them, look, it is circumcision, but it's not the physical super circumcision. Let me try this again. Not the physical circumcision, because that pushes us back into superstition. Both words, struggling. And as he is addressing this with them, the emphasis continues to be on the fact that this whole thing has already been done. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Not the physical circumcision. That doesn't matter. Your whole self ruled by the flesh. That old sinful nature that you had, that's what was cut off. Not a physical piece of skin, but the, the circumcised heart. As he puts off your old flesh. Having been buried with him in baptism, this has already happened having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Okay, notice this. Our standing with God has already been entirely accomplished by Christ through our faith. Three things we want to recognize here. First, the work was done before we did anything about it. The work was done before we did anything about it. Christ accomplished what was needed for your salvation before you ever even thought about trusting Him. He did it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And our sinful hearts weren't looking for Him. If you're looking for Him, it's because the Spirit already took hold of you and said, hey, open your eyes. And He gives you the ability to see and trust. It's only those who know God who seek God. That's a sermon for another time. We can take a journey through that. The work was done before we did anything about it. Now recognize that we need to believe. It's by grace through faith. It's not applied to us till we take hold of it. But do you remember Paul saying in Ephesians 2.8? Even that faith is the gift of God. There's no place for you to boast. Stop thinking you're better than somebody else. You're not holier that you got to see this. God opened your eyes so that you could. The work was done before we did anything about it. Secondly, this is a matter of spiritual reality, not of sacred rituals. This is a matter of spiritual reality, not of sacred rituals. Without spending too much time in Old Testament thinking, as he discusses circumcision, he is not dismissing circumcision as irrelevant in the past. It was a previous covenant. That's how God identified his covenant with his people Israel and later Judah. But it was never about the circumcision. It was about the spiritual reality of the covenant. The reality of being His, belonging to God, which God did when He chose Abram, whom we know as Abraham. And when God delivered them, God did it when He chose Moses. God did it. 
But it was never about the ritual. When he gives the book of Leviticus, all of the acts that brought about forgiveness were acts of obedience that required faith because God was still the one doing forgiving. He was not under contract. If you do things the right way, then that, because you've done this, you've gone through the ritual, now God has to forgive you. That's why in Amos chapter 5, he says, I hate your worship. I hate it. It's like the stench of death in my nostrils. Stop with your sacrifices. Don't even come to the temple. I'm not going to hear your prayers. You do the things, but you've missed me. It's the faith. It's the spiritual reality, not the thing that is symbolized. Those things, as the writer of Hebrews says, they're just a shadow. They're written to show us something bigger. As Paul says here, they're they're just a shadow of what was to come and was already reality in Christ. The work was done before we did anything about it. It's a matter of spiritual reality, not of sacred rituals. Thirdly, the ordinances of Christ are beneficial not causative. The ordinances of Christ are beneficial, not causative. Notice, in the New Testament, we still have rituals. The New Testament church has rituals. I, I would encourage you to kind of run away a little bit from the term sacrament, which has that sacramental image with it, that we do these things to obtain God's grace, although we often will use them interchangeably, and that's okay. But just for your own clarity of mind, when we speak of the ordinances of Christ, we generally, even in our founding documents here, we refer to what others call sacraments as the ordinances of the Lord's Supper, the remembrance, celebration, and baptism. Because these are things that were ordained for us by our Lord. When we take this meal together to remember His sacrifice for us, We're not making it up. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. When we're baptized, it's not so that we can gain somebody's approval. We can bring down, you know, grace from God. It's not because the church made it up. It's because Jesus said, this is how we identify with him. When you make disciples, you baptize them into the name. But understand Every time that happens in Scripture, the belief comes first. The belief that saves, the confession that saves, that comes first. And then the public declaration through the ceremony, through the ritual. The ordinances of Christ are beneficial in that these are uh, often referred to as the ordinary means of grace. That doesn't mean that they are the means by which we receive God's saving grace or that there's some inherent, efficacious, mystical power to bless us. But we grow in grace when we share the Lord's table together. When we contemplate the reality of Christ on the cross because of my sin, that the one who knew no sin became sin for us, Together, that's why we call it communion. We share in it together with thanksgiving, which is where we get the word Eucharist from the Greek word for thanksgiving. It's the Lord's Supper because it's what He commanded us to do. There is benefit in this, but it's not causative. It doesn't cause us to be in right standing with God. You didn't come in here today out of step with God. You, you eat some cracker and drink some juice and suddenly you're right with God. That's not how any of this works. It's the spiritual reality. And you are welcome at His table when you have given your life to Him. Or more specifically and precisely, you have received the grace by faith. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sin and rose from the dead by the power of God and you have confessed that He is your master. He's running your show. It's not you anymore. Now you don't do it perfectly, 
But that is your heart, is to let Him be Lord. The Bible says in Romans 10, you're saved. That's how it works, period. No extras. Jesus had lots of opportunities to give us all of the tricks to get in. He didn't do that. Paul had lots of opportunities to give us all the tricks to get in. He didn't do that. Even when he addressed it specifically, he didn't do that. When we look at the book of Acts as the church unfolds, they had opportunity over and over and over again as they're starting these new churches to say, hey, look, you need to do this and this and this. Here's your list. But all we see is the beneficial ceremonies that are not causative. They don't buy us God's favor. The same is true of baptism. Our standing with God has been entirely accomplished by Christ, not by us, not by our sacred acts, not by our worship together. Through faith, because we believe that God is telling the truth. We live in the same way we receive Christ, by faith alone. Our standing with Him is entirely accomplished already by Christ through our faith. Notice this. The work of God's grace is done by Christ, not by us. Just to make sure that we get it, he kind of digs down a little bit in verses 13 to 15. When, notice it's a when, not if, this is true of every single person, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, before your sinful nature had been removed in Christ by faith. God made you alive. You were dead, but God made you alive with Christ, in Christ, through Christ, because of Christ. It's Christ. That's how you became alive. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. The charges against us were canceled because he already took the penalty and paid the price. All of it in Christ. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away. This is already done. You're not getting more of it by coming to church. You grow. It's expected. It's even commanded. We grow through our fellowship together. We grow through the preaching of the Word. We grow through our communion in the, in the shared remembrance celebration. We grow through our public testimony through baptism. We grow even through the discipline of the church. As we are trained and raised up and corrected and rebuked, these are the means of God's grace in that we grow through them. But the work of changing who we are, that's all Him. And it's all done. The work of God's grace is done by Christ, not by us. Notice in verse 15, having done this, having already disarmed the powers and authorities, the dark forces of evil in this world, He made a public spectacle of them. That means He humiliated the devil. He humiliated the devil by triumphing over these dark forces by the cross. Just when the devil thought he'd won. I'm going to go farther than what's said here. I don't do that very often. I'm not going to try and go above the text. I just want to draw your attention to the other places where we see the devil humiliated. You know what's humiliating for the devil? You. If you're in Christ... You have been given victory in Christ. The devil hates you because you're a defector from his kingdom. You used to belong to him. But if you're in Christ, your very existence as a child of God humiliates the devil. The church is the manifestation of God's glory in the world. And he is building us as living stones into a holy temple. And our existence, because of what Jesus did on the cross, is the humiliation 
of the forces of evil. Let me move quickly because I'm a little bit behind here. The work of God's grace is done by Christ, not by us. Notice a couple of points here that we want to be uh, very aware of. Christian baptism identifies believers with work already done. Christian baptism identifies believers with work already done. We are baptized into Christ. We are identified with, united with, what He did for us on the cross. When we come up out of the water, that symbolizes our being raised to a new life in Him. But He already did it. It's already happened. This is our identification with Him. You can see this in Romans 5, 12 through 6, 14-ish. You can keep reading if you want that. You can compare it to Ephesians chapter 2, as we mentioned earlier, where we were all dead. We all belong to the devil. Dead. And I don't know if you know this about dead people. They don't do anything. You weren't drowning. And God threw you the lifeline and you reached out and grabbed it. Nope, you were a corpse floating in the water. You were not sick and God healed you. You were already dead. Nothing to contribute. Baptism is an identification with and an illustration of your burial and resurrection. Buried with Christ as he died for our sins. Raised up to a new life in him. Second notice, the Lord's Supper in the Lord's Supper, we remember and celebrate grace already given. In the Lord's Supper, we remember and celebrate grace already given. Christian baptism identifies believers with the work already done. And in the Lord's Supper, we remember and celebrate grace already given. When Jesus did this with his brethren in the upper room, it was on the night that he was betrayed. And it hadn't happened yet. How do we know this is a symbolic act? Because he's telling them, this is my blood, this is my flesh, but he was still standing there with them. So he couldn't have literally meant this is my blood and my flesh because he still had his blood and his flesh in front of them. We added all that a couple hundred years later. In a clear, plain reading of the text, it's not hard to see when Jesus says, as he's dishing this out to him, here's the bread. This, this is my body now, broken for you. That's what's about to happen to him. And he has them eat it, and he says, as often as you do this, not right now, right now you're doing it connecting the dots. Later, when you do this, do it in remembrance of me. You can't do something in remembrance of somebody who's standing with you. It's what happened afterward. When he gives him the cup. Don't, it's, not, it's not vampire life. He's not doing some cannibalistic weirdness. That was actually accused of, the, the church was accused of that. And in the Reformation, that was one of the things that Swingley in particular said is, wait a minute, if we're talking about Jesus actually being present here, we're back into this cannibalism type thing. That does not in any way seem to match what the Bible says. Every time we take this supper, every time we come to the Lord's table, we are remembering and celebrating the grace He already gave to us in His death and resurrection in our place. Notice this as we get to the end of the passage. We trust in the reality of Christ, not in rules or ceremonies. We trust in the reality of Christ, not in rules or ceremonies. Starting with verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are all things that, that are important to the Jewish legal tradition all of these things coming out of the old testament or out of the rabbinical teachings as they added to things look it, 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 paul's saying look all this was fulfilled in christ that you're supposed to do the extra stuff you were never supposed to do 
So don't let anybody suck you into that. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. It's found in Christ. We trust in the reality of Christ, not rules or ceremonies. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're proud of their spiritual experiences. They love in their testimony to point these things out. They're puffed up with idle notions by their, notice it's I-D-L-E, notions that don't get you anywhere. They're not doing anything. As opposed to I-D-O-L, notions about idols. And yet these idle notions become idols very quickly. They go into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their, spiritual, by their unspiritual minds. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Notice this. Sacramentalism blurs or blocks our focus on Christ. Don't, don't let anybody pull you into that. Don't let anybody judge you by these ceremonies. They're a shadow. When you get focused on those things, your focus on Christ is blurred or blocked. Don't be confused. Second, those who focus on rituals, rules, or reputation are not connected to Christ. Those who focus on rituals, rules, or reputation are not connected to Christ. Well, I'll just let that rest for you. Last point we'll look at in verses 20 to 23. Ritualism and externalism may seem wise, but they're worthless. They may seem wise, but they're worthless. When we overemphasize spiritual disciplines to the point where those disciplines become in our minds sacraments, so my fasting is not just beneficial, it's something that, that gives me a deeper, special insight. It makes me specially holy. It becomes a sacrament for me in my mind. When taking communion is more than Jesus intended it to be, it becomes a sacrament in my mind. And it seems like something, but it's not anything. And when we come up with special rules, Christians should always do this. Christians must never do that. And we start to come up with new ways to worship God. And we follow charismatic teachers who've got big personalities and loud voices and maybe sell a lot of books. And we get excited because somebody brings a new word, a new understanding, a new revelation from God. And we're tossed around by the cunning, crafty schemes of humans who are disconnected from God and disconnected from Christ. You can rest assured that this is a trap it is dangerous in such spirituality that does not rest on the guidance of Scripture alone as its final authority is worthless. It seems spiritual and religious, but it lacks any real power. It does not provide a meaningful change. Can it restrain your behaviors? Sure but it doesn't do anything to change that darkness inside. No, it's not about ritualism and externalism. When you hear folks, evangelicals, say 
It's not about religion, it's about relationship. That's really what they mean by religion here is ritualism, externalism. It's not about the trappings. It's about a spiritual reality of knowing Jesus Christ personally. Not because of some magical experience that you had, but because you have trusted the Word of God. The Spirit of God speaks to the children of God through the Word of God. And when we veer away from that, trusting in our own subjective understanding, one of two things is happening. If you receive some revelation or voice from God that doesn't match the Scripture, guess what? It ain't from God. It's either your own vain imagining or it's the devil. Or, if God is telling you the same thing He's telling you in His Word, He didn't really need to tell you because He already wrote it down. So let's stop seeking after some Gnostic vision of a spiritual knowledge that is not attainable through God's Word. That's why it was the spark to the whole Reformation when they realized, well, wait a minute. We've got to follow the Bible. All right. Let's bring this to a close. Just as Paul redirected the Colossians back to sound doctrine and biblical worship here in Colossians 2, the Great Reformation redirected the wayward medieval church recovering biblical, gospel-saturated forms, functions, and foundations for worship. It didn't happen all at once, and it wasn't uniformly good. In fact, it wasn't actually uniform at all, but it was real. There were different things that they did, and some of it was wrong. Some of it got away from Scripture. Luther didn't go far enough in some of his reforms. He wanted to revise and improve the Mass. But as a devout monk and priest, he never wanted to leave the church until he wasn't given the option of staying. His deeply ingrained framework wouldn't allow him to let go of the Mass completely. And he carried an unfortunate echo of sacramentalism into his teachings. Zwingli, in Switzerland, went, went further regarding the remembrance celebration specifically by recognizing that our Lord gave it as a symbolic commemorative ceremony. But they were both trapped in their medieval framework regarding baptism. Passionately maintaining infant baptism as the norm since they could not conceive of a real separation of church and state. That was the, the doctrine at the time that they were hand in glove, or as Luther would say, the church is the right hand of God and the state is the left hand of God. And they would work together. They couldn't imagine a world where they were separated. And so they saw maintaining infant baptism, Christian baptism, to be crucial in order to maintain a Christian society against the spread of Islam, which was an outside threat, and to maintain a Protestant society against the power of the Roman Catholic Papists, which was their internal threat. It would take the more radical reforms of those known as Anabaptists to make that jump back to baptism as a chosen and declared identification with faith in Christ. We still face the same struggle today. Not only in Christian denominations that still hold to those old doctrines, and, and there are plenty, you know them, but right here in our own lives and hearts. We may not have priests, but we often tend to think of pastors and other church leaders as some kind of special class who have a special connection with God that we don't have access to. We fall into that same sacerdotalism by seeing the leaders as somehow essentially different. We may not teach sacramentalism, but we often chase after feelings, experiences, and special knowledge from God. 
we act as if baptism or communion or even sitting in a church building have some inherent power to bless or convey God's grace to us. That doesn't mean that we don't receive God's gracious benefits through these things. But they are not the cause. They're just the benefits. We spend money and time chasing after preachers, teachers, and authors who tickle our ears or craft worship experiences, so-called, that appeal to our flesh. Things that seem spiritual and wise, but are really worthless and offensive to God. That kind of Christianity lacks any real power to change us. May we, as those who trust Christ alone, recognize and remember with those reformers of old that we are made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone. Since I waited too long to bring that point in so you didn't get a chance to write it down, I'm going to read that again because I want to make sure you get it. We're made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone. As we draw this to a close, remember that the ceremonies of Christian worship celebrate God's grace, not obtain it. The verse that most impacted Martin Luther in shaking his old framework, seeking to reform the church, was Romans 1.17. It's our memory verse for today. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we, uh, as we draw the sermon time to a close and we begin to think about the body and blood of Christ given for us, I pray that you would drive deep into our minds and hearts, seal to us, Lord, the truth, the reality that the ceremonies of our worship celebrate your grace they don't obtain it. They certainly can't earn it. Remind us that your righteousness is given to us as we receive it by faith. We pray these things in the name of your one and only Son, our one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, as we uh, head into this sacred act, this ceremony that is beneficial, not causative. We remember the body and blood of Christ. And to put our minds in the right frame, wanted the, the band to lead us in a song uh, with a new verse. You'll, you're familiar with the song. We've done it before, and some of you may be more familiar with it from the past. As we recognize that he looked beyond my fault and saw my need. So if you would stand and join us as we sing this. to